talking to me? Well, then who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Uh, greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is a uh, special edition of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, this week's episode is brought to you by uh, Resentment and also by uh, NR+. I'll talk more about NR+, uh, later. Uh, but for now, I'm, 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 I'm here. Well, here is actually a new place. It's, I'm here in Nantucket. I am. I've never been here before. I'm staying at a uh, friend with friends here at the beach, and it's uh, pretty wonderful. It's still hot, but it's nothing like the uh, you know the Michael Moore sweatpant crotch fog that is Washington D.C. Thanks <laughs> um, for giving us that image. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, and everybody. That's Jack Butler, the host of what's the name of your uh, podcast? Young Americans on Ricochet. Yeah, Young Americans on Ricochet. How's that thing doing? Oh, well, we just recorded a second episode, so it so it, it is doing. You've literally doubled your uh, your list. Yeah, your, doubled uh, our output, just like uh, Stalin told us to. And, uh, yeah, so I'm here in Nantucket. This is, you know, this is a little otherworldly for me because it is, it, this is one of, I, I would get, I guess, one of the three holy sites of, of waspiness. The others being Martha's Vineyard, where I hear that, Alan Dershowitz is being shunned, and uh, and it's interesting. It's fun. It's nice. Wait, it's, wait, wait. You said you only said two of them. What's the third? Oh, oh. Um, what did I have in mind for the third? Um, the grave of Hobie Parker, that guy David Brooks talks about in his Atlantic essay, The Organization Kid. No, but that's a good nomination. Um, oh, like Block Island, maybe, or... Um, Oh no! Oh, Fisher is it? Fisher's Island is that that place off of Florida that's crazy rich? But uh, you know that actually reminds me that the you know everyone talks about how Jerusalem is one of the three holiest sites in Islam, and my understanding is that is almost entirely made up, and that Jerusalem doesn't actually appear in the Quran, um, and uh, it's all sort of a 20th century or 19th and 20th century bit of propaganda. I'm open to correction on this, but I've. I've heard that from a few people, and I, I, I've yet to see a compelling case about how that's not true. And this whole thing about how Muhammad ascended to heaven from the Dome of the Rock, I think, is a bit of a uh, is a bit a bit apocryphal. Um, Man, if only we could summon uh, Bernard Lewis via seance. He could probably also clarify that thing about uh, seventy-two virgins or seventy-two raisins. Yeah, we could get Michael Rubin back. He um he could probably clarify this for us. True. Too. So anyway, uh, yeah. So I'm out here um at the beach. Jack is back at the office holding uh, uh holding the fort as it were, and um we don't have any, we have we don't want to do a pure rank punditry podcast, but at the same time, there's not much else we can do when we're flying solo like this because we don't have a guest. And uh you know, so I've been here for a few days trying to follow all of the Supreme Court stuff, and I don't quite care about who is the nominee so long as the nominee comes off of the list. And I wrote a column about it this week. And, 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 you know, my basic argument is, is that what people don't know, you, you find this stuff all over Twitter where people are trying to make it sound like 
the people on this list are all sort of Trump henchmen, apologist clones and whatnot. And what's fascinating to me is how people seem to have immediately forgotten that the whole reason the list exists is because a vast swath of the right could was not willing to had real concerns about Donald Trump when it came to his Supreme Court appointments. And so this was a sop to essentially the conservative establishment uh, that uh, a sort of promise to stay within the mainstream of conservatism and not go with his instincts. And uh, that's why they came up with the list. That's why the Federalist why it was all outsourced to the Federalist Society, uh, because prior to this list, you know, Trump was, he claimed joking, making jokes about the, the appointing his sister to the Supreme Court, which gave everybody the, 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 the willies. And, uh, and so it's funny how now, you know, I understand why the, the sort of rank and file Democrats and the spinners are trying to make it sound like this list is a non-starter, but as a, just a matter of, uh, a sort of larger principle, you would think more people would be willing to recognize that this list is actually by, by appointing people from the, by naming people from this list, it is literally the most democratic legitimate thing Donald Trump could do because he campaigned explicitly on this list. And I know they added to the list after he got elected, but it's basically, you know, the people on this list are who he has a mandate to appoint. And while there are probably plenty of other hardcore right winger types who or conservative, conservative legal jurists, whatever you want to call them, that people like Ed Whalen and um, Ilya Shapiro and, and, all, and Andy McCarthy and all our guys would still like, those guys haven't been vetted in the same way. They haven't been, uh, they don't have the sort of democratic legitimacy and authenticity that the list does. And so going off list sort of, you know, like ordering off menu carries huge risks in case one of those nominees explodes. And, um, and so I, you know, I find it really fun to watch all the legal nerds, um, jockey for their pick, among the 25, I gather that, you know, Hugh Hewitt is all about this Kethledge guy. Is that how you pronounce it? I think so. And, and then there, I, I think Ann Coulter is sort of off her rocker about, I saw her tweeting this morning that, that, that Brett Kavanaugh is an open borders extremist, which, but I mean, that's a kind of a big, if true kind of statement, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I find it all kind of fun and criminological to watch, but I don't, really care very much so long as it comes off of the list. And this sort of points to one of the things that, you know, sort of highlights my point about, you know, all of this idiocy about screaming at me about how I'm a never Trumper and I can never agree with Trump. The transactional parts with the Trump administration or the Trump presidency that deliver conservative wins, I'm entirely in favor of, even if they also translate into Trump wins. It doesn't bother me in the slightest to say that I'm for you know, getting conservative justices on the Supreme Court. You know, that's something I was for before he ran for office. That's something I'll be for long after he leaves office. And the tendency to sort of, you know, like Brick Hume, who I love and, you know, is a friend of mine and I've worked with him, you know, at Fox for years. But, you know, he tweets this stuff about how, you know, never Trumpers must be um, beside themselves because of this win for Donald Trump. And, you know, if he's referring to Max Boot, or to Jen Rubin, maybe he's right. I don't know. But this is one of the problems that we have with this phrase, never Trumper. 
is that people use it so promiscuously so as to include, to leave it open and vague about who they mean. And, you know, one of the responses I get when I get angry about this or when I revent about this is people say, well, if it doesn't apply to you, why do you care? And one of the reasons why it still bothers me is because people, people still accuse me of being a never Trumper. And yet they describe people who have no bearing on anything I've written or said. And it's just, it's, it's, it's sort of like neocon. It's one of these phrases that distorts more than it reveals and it allows people to hide behind ambiguity or equivocation about who they really mean and essentially becomes a straw man and kind of drives me nuts. And if nobody ever called me an ever Trumper, I wouldn't care. But I, why can't these people just sort of name names? And instead what they do is they sort of do this uh, vague innuendo thing. And then when it's sort of like a Mott and Bailey argument, right? Where they talk about never Trumpers as this whole class. And then when you say, well, you're not talking about me or you're not, are you talking about, you know, or you say, are you talking about me sort of in a taxi driver kind of way? <laughs> um, they, uh, they retreat and they say, oh no, no, I meant like, you know, I meant Max Boot or I meant Jen Rubin. Um, but they want to make it this as broad a category as possible. And um, it's just really annoying. And, and some people do it, I think, absentmindedly. Um, because they're talking to people who all have, who sort of are already bought into this language, but then some people I think do it really dishonestly and invidiously. And I don't think that's Brit, but, um, I think there are a lot of people who do it that way and, um, it is annoying. I mean, you don't call yourself a never Trumper, do you, Jack? What am I? Am I, it depends on what you allow me to call myself. (laughs) Well, I mean, you have, you have agency. You were allowed to, um. Wow, I must have gotten a promotion. (laughs) Well, I mean, let me put it another way. You have, uh, your leash has some slack in it. Yes, thank you. (laughs) If you don't want to answer the question, if that's your way of saying you don't want to answer the question, that's fine. Well, I'm just, I'm slightly demurring because I don't really, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to engage me in this discussion productively, I don't feel like I have much to add because I'm, I'm a nobody in this sense. You're the one with all the with all the drama behind you. So I don't know what you want. What, what do you expect me to say? Fair enough. I, no, that's fine. We can, we can, you know, if you, if you want to, you want to hide behind nobody status as a way to avoid hard questions. That's uh, your right. I guess I can't really do that for much longer. Well, okay, fine. Here you go. I don't, I agree with what you wrote immediately after the election ended. Namely, never Trump does not exist anymore. At least not right now. I guess it, this is something I've actually been meaning to ask you. Does, could never Trump theoretically exist again come 2020? Oh, sure. I mean, I think it could. I think for some people it will. I think there's a long time between now and 2020. But for sure, I think the label will come back in 2020. Because, again, by then it becomes relevant again, right? Are you going to endorse? Or are you going to vote for and if there are people who say that they'll never endorse and never vote for him, I guess you could call them never Trumpers. For me, you know, that jury is out and I'll wait and see. But it's interesting, you know, it's like uh, Adam Baldwin, who's sort of a, I'm a friendly acquaintance of mine, you know, the actor. Uh, great in Full Metal uh, Jacket. Great in Full Metal Jacket. Great in, um, uh, he's actually one of the only really great things in the second half of Full Metal Jacket. Part of my thesis is that uh, 
oddly very similar to Stripes, another military movie, but very different. <laughs> Basically <laughs> um, the only thing that those two movies have in common. <laughs> um, this, no, that's not true. I mean, actually, you could do a good, pretty good piece for like, a, you know, the dearly departed acculturated or something uh, comparing the two. Right. So the first half is all about basic training. And the second half is about them going abroad and engaging the enemy. Yeah, I guess um, you're right. FYI, and, I um I actually watched Full Metal Jacket for the first time not that long ago, and the first half of the movie made me want to join the Marines, which I know is the opposite of the effect it's supposed to have. But oh uh, well, I guess I'm just a sadist or masochist. Well, both. Why can't you be both? I think you can. I mean, you could be a schlemiel and a schlemazel and spill the soup on yourself. <laughs> um, uh, which is not to say joining the Marines is either of those things. I'm just saying that, you know, they're not contradictory. Um, but hey, Adam Baldwin, to, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so Baldwin was asking me, you know, sincerely, what is it you can do to, what is it that Donald Trump could do that you would support him? And it was a totally good faith exchange. I got no problem with the questions, but we basically just sort of left it open-ended because the problem is, is that what does it mean by support? Right. I mean, um, does it, there is this sort of weird contention, at least weird by my lights, that um, if you start racking up enough, if Trump starts racking up enough conservative wins, however defined, right, that his supporters or, or that Republicans or conservatives, however you want to call them, should start treating him like a normal president. And, uh, and, you know, and defend him when he's sort of, as long as he's not crazy wrong, uh, they should defend his actions. They should give him the benefit of the doubt. They should support his decisions, even if they don't necessarily fully agree with them and all these kinds of things. Basically that everyone should be like a partisan supporter of Donald Trump. Well, first of all, I don't think that's in my job description for any president, even, you know, if it was Marco Rubio being president, I don't think that's. Certainly not what National Review should do is sort of bend over backwards to rationalize and spin, you know, mistakes or turn 180 on their position on our positions to support a Republican. We're not an organ of the RNC, but the the, in, the more fundamental contradiction or problem with this this formulation, which is not always very well articulated, but it's an assumption behind so much stuff out there that you know, Republicans or conservatives should support Donald Trump as if he were a normal, legitimate, conventional president. And at the same time, they brag constantly about how he is not a normal, conventional president. They say he's legitimate, which I think he is in the constitutional sense, to be sure. <laughs> they want to say he's, you know, they want to brag about how he's a disruptor, how he's changing the rules of the game, how he's you know, uh, thinking outside the box, all of this purple prose, mostly nonsense by my lights. And they want to take credit for giving credit for being incredibly unconventional. But at the same time, they want people to start saying he's normal and that, that and should treat him and give him the normal deference that we give to a normal pre Republican president. And there's an inherent contradiction in there. But regardless, like, for me, this when 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 I, as I told Adam, I was like, "Look, I, I I don't I don't really understand what you mean by support, because Donald Trump is is a hundred and 
5% wrong, maybe 110% wrong about trade, right? I mean, he, he like literally doesn't understand what trade deficits are. He doesn't understand foreign investment. He, um, you know, he's now going after WTO. He's doing all of these things that I just think are just objectively bad ideas. And it doesn't, I just don't understand the, the argument that I shouldn't say so because he's given us two Supreme Court justices, or I shouldn't say so because he's cut taxes. Um, it seems to me that, that there is no, and, and, and it'd be one thing if Donald Trump were out there actually making coherent, serious arguments, like giving serious policy speeches, explaining his position on trade and explaining why he needs to do things the way that he's doing. And if, if he were doing that, then you could at least, he could give you some ammunition to, and, and some cover for supporting him. But instead, he's doing almost all of this stuff on a sort of glandular level where he just he just is locked into this 1980s, 1970s sort of view on trade. And, and, and he never gives any indication that he understands how supply chains work or how, you know, trade works, really. And yet there seems to be like this, and I'm just using this as an example, there seems to be this assumption that, you know, he's proving that he, it was better to vote for, for Donald Trump than for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And so, therefore, everyone should support him. And, and, and I'm like, okay, so support him meaning what? Like recognizing his constitutional legitimacy or does supporting him mean that I have to like shut up and grab the, the pom-poms and cheer when he does stuff that I, that I find totally indefensible, um, intellectually and economically. And, and no one's really been able to sort of explain this to me. And instead you get like, you know, and we're not going to dwell on it, but that incredibly, asinine piece that the American spectator run by this, this woman, Emerald Robinson, or at least it was her byline on the piece. And I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical that she actually wrote it, but I have no evidence for that whatsoever. I just, it just doesn't ring like that. And I'm curious to see how that all plays out, but let's just give her the, that her and the, and the spectator, the benefit of the doubt, just assume that she did write it. It's really profoundly dumb. And, and, uh, and at parts sort of grotesque, but there is this, uh, it, it is, it is, it has gotten to the point where sort of just Trumpism qua Trumpism is, is, is this sort of culture war definer. And, and if you haven't completely recanted, um, your skepticism about the guy that therefore that shows you don't understand real America you don't understand real Americans. You don't understand conservatism, however defined, and all this kind of stuff. And I find it so, first of all, just ass-poundingly dumb on the merits. But, um, but more broadly, uh, it is, is so clearly sort of dog-whistly in, uh, in its form of argumentation that you're just supposed to pretend – everyone gets what you're talking about and it's becoming one of these things that, you know, that, that just divides people intuitively and the new elitists are anybody who, who claims not to get it. And I just, I find the whole thing tedious and exhausting and, and I think it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. But anyway, 
You just think that because you're uh, sterile and low testosterone, as Miss Robinson accused, not you directly, but some of your um, cuck compatriots of being in that spectator piece. Right. That's another one of these. I mean, that that is like, I mean, I, like, I will admit, you know, with things like Pajama Boy, <laughs> I have... I have questioned the masculinity of some some people or some icons. I mean, I'm not going to lie about that. But in this context, the the idea that your masculinity is invested is is at stake or measurable based upon your support for you know uh, Donald Trump, uh, I, I find one of the most revealing sort of tells about a writer or a pundit. You know, if 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 the if the standard is real men wear MAGA hats, the people who make those arguments are revealing more about themselves than they are about anybody else. Um, you know, it takes a certain amount of inadequacy and lack of confidence to outsource your manhood uh, to those kinds of things. But so I, to switch gears to some sort of rank punditry points. I mean, one of the points I wanted to make. Um, that I, well, at the outset of this, and I got distracted by my own wandering off. Um, it does feel to me like the Democrats are blowing it. It's, it's really kind of amazing to me how, I mean, so one of my core beliefs about, you know, and I get into this a little bit in the book, it's one of these things that I think helped explain the entire world that we're in is that we live in one of these moments where, populace of the left and the right are um, worrying about almost the exact opposite of what they should be worrying about. Sort of like the C.S. Lewis has a line about this. And there's that line about how every age uh, worries about the things that, that are the, are the least threatening to it. So like in the Victorian era, they were all worried about, they were all freaking out about sexual impropriety and licentiousness at a time of maximum, you know, sexual probity and, and, uh, Comstockery kind of thing. And in recent years, like right after nine 11, the left freaked out about how free speech was the, was the biggest concern. We're going to lose all of our free speech in a moment where it didn't really matter. And, and, and now for the last five years or so, and I guess since at least the, uh, Tea parties and Occupy Wall Street. There has been this obsession with, you know, powerful establishment institutions running our lives, controlling our lives. That there are these centers of power out there that manipulate us. That you know, and, it, and that takes all sorts of different forms. That you know, partisanship is is terrible, and that the parties are rigged. Right. This is the Bernie Sanders thing, and for Bernie Sanders, there was some truth to it. And the reality is, is that the problem with the political parties isn't that they're too strong, but that they're too weak. You know, if the, if the Republican Party had been anything like its former self, certainly if the Republican Party had been like what it was prior to the primary system, uh, there's no way Donald Trump even gets to run as a Republican, never mind gets the nomination. But these, all of these institutions have essentially been democratized and opened up, and there is no powerful institution in either of either of these these parties. They're basically a bunch of press releases and email accounts and email lists. And, um, and so what's amazing to me is how, you know, like right now the democratic party is 
so buffeted by the animal spirits of its base because whatever gets clicks, whatever gets attention, whatever arouses passion, whichever, whatever gets people to close their laptops and actually go into the streets, that is coming to define what the party's positions are. And that's true on the right and the left. And so you had, in terms of, I, 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 there's not a policy point at all. This is just about messaging. You had in the family separation policy, one of the greatest gifts to the Democratic Party that we've seen in years. It, it played perfectly as, an, as a wedge issue to peel off even more suburban, independent, and Republican moderate women, you know, and it had the White House on defensive. It was, it had images. It was a great political issue, right? Forget the morality and the policy part of it. It just as a pure matter of messaging, it was great for the Democrats. But because of like uh, the base of the party wagging the dog of the party, they've gone from that to saying we have to abolish ICE. And that's so profoundly stupid. Um, because first of all, I mean, just as a policy matter, you know, you can, fine, abolish ICE. You still need some law enforcement function that enforces immigration laws. And if you want to give it to some other agency and call it something else, that's fine. When it used to be INS, the Immigration and Nationalization Service, that used to be part of the Justice Department. And, you know, my wife worked for the Justice Department back then. And she would tell me how ecstatic all of the DOJ guys were to get rid of INS because it was a source of nothing but headaches and political controversies. And it went into the Department of Homeland Security. And now you got this, you know, this Alexandria Ortiz, uh, what, what, what is her name? Cortez? I can't remember. I, for some reason, also have trouble remembering her name. I don't know yeah. why. It's weirdly not sticky. Like I had, I had to do TV the other night and I had to write it down and have it in front of me because it doesn't stick to my hand. It's like stick in my brain for some reason. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's it. Okay. I think it'd be better if she switched Cortez and Ocasio. That'd be easier to remember for some reason. You should tell her that. Yeah, um, well, if I ever, well, she is a peer, <laughs> so I'm, I'm perhaps likelier to associate with her than you are. That's probably true. And, uh, but now, because of, of her and a few others, they're talking about abolishing ICE. And what they want to do is they want to put this function back into the Justice Department, which would, drum roll please, it would give this power to Jeff Sessions, um, which is not exactly a policy win for, for liberal open borders types. And yet that's, you know, it's, it's but so there, my point is that it's not the policy point I want to make. It's that the policy incoherence reflects the fact that the Democratic Party is, is losing its messaging because it is giving itself over to the passion of the sort of populist base. And there's nothing inside the mechanisms or the, 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 in, the institutional levers of the Democratic Party cannot impose discipline anymore on its base. And this is the same problem. I mean, it's a similar problem with the Republican Party. Um, the only difference is, is that the president of the United States is hugely popular with the base. And so therefore the Republican Party as an institution doesn't care about imposing discipline on those guys. Um, but for the Democrats, it's a real problem, you know, because there are a lot of people out there who may hate the family separation policy and who may have real problems with Donald Trump. 
but they also have a functioning cerebellum and understand that abolishing ICE is just incredibly dumb. And, and, and even though they may not believe that the Democrats would actually do it, it does cause them to worry that these are not serious people. And, um, and moreover, you know, I think one of the things that why Nancy Pelosi is trying to tamp this stuff down and she's not succeeding because she stinks, but one of the reasons she's trying to tamp this stuff down is that Donald Trump, you know, Lord knows I have my criticisms. He's very good at taking, at picking up examples from the fringes of the democratic party or the, or the, or the left wing generally, you know, the, and turning them into icons that's allegedly symbolize all opposition to him and the Democratic Party generally, right? That's what he did with Kaepernick. That's what he's been doing with Maxine Waters. You know, he takes Maxine Waters and he basically holds her up like a Medusa's head uh, to petrify his enemies. And the more Democrats start screaming uh, things like, you know, abolish ICE or that America is no better than Nazi Germany or that, you know, these are like the uh, interma camps and, and all the rest, the more it helps Donald Trump. And, um, and I think Pelosi and Schumer understand this, but it's a sign of the weakness of our, our political parties that they actually have no ability to impose message discipline on anybody. And I think this is going to be a real advantage for Trump going into 2020. It's probably, I think it's an advantage. I still think the Democrats probably take back the house, but it's an advantage for them. And the 28, it's still an advantage for the Republicans in 2018, because the more, you can say, hey, look, you know, you may have problems with Donald Trump, but look how unreasonable these people are, how deranged these people are. That helps the Republicans. What the Republicans want to do is reassure skittish suburbanites that that there will, there will be less chaos if Republicans hold on to the House. Democrats, their ideal message would be, that we're going to institute some normalcy. There'll be less drama that you'll, that if you give one, at least half of one branch of government to the other party, there'll be an important check on the worst excesses of the Republicans. And um, that's the messaging that Schumer and Pelosi want. And instead what they're getting is all of this abolish ice, you know, ice is the new, you know, Vermont or SS or whatever. And that's, it's just a sign of how weak, the actual parties are and being able to control them, their own selves. I think what else is going on here, I, was it uh, Luigi Zingales, the Italian free market economist who wrote that article when Trump toyed with running in 2012, uh, warning, or no, no, he wrote that article, but what I'm thinking of is he wrote another sort of sequel article just after the election, uh, the 2016 election, warning left-wing opponents of Donald Trump that He'd seen this show before and in Italy with Berlusconi, and Berlusconi had a marvelous gift. I don't know if it was really a gift, but he had a marvelous tendency to inflame his opponents in such a way that it just made them look silly. And he just kept on winning because his opponents could not uh, figure out how to oppose him in a way that didn't make them look like idiots or fanatics. Yeah, I think there's a lot There's a lot of truth to that, is that in pa, uh, John Podoris had a good column about this recently about how the sort of Trump superpower is being able to make his opponents seem more unreasonable than he is and, or that making them violate norms too. And for whatever reason, sort of a too big to fail thing, I think that's right. That, you know, 
people have internalized and priced in and discounted the fact that Trump is president and he is who he is. But they what they really don't want to see is that everybody else act like him. I mean, it's sort of like the Rubio versus Trump phenomenon from the campaign. They forgave Trump for calling Ben Carson a child, you know, likening him to a child molester and all those kinds of things. And they forgave him because he's a character talking about how big his hands are and all that kind of stuff. But they couldn't forgive Rubio for getting in the mud with him, even though I, I like that stuff. But and I think that's what we're seeing that now on a sort of institution wide basis. So what else do we have? Um, let's see. So, oh, have you seen any movies lately? I have. I made the mistake of, uh, you know, one day you'll know when you're married that there is a it's it's there's a currency to marriage about who gets to sort of because you're always like you're always like saying I'm fine with whatever you know whatever you want to have for dinner is fine with me or whatever wherever you want to order from is fine with me or whatever movie you want to see is fine with me but and the other person says the same thing too but everyone has preferences and so every now and then you kind of overrule the other or you you assert your preference over someone uh, over your your wife or husband's preference and so I made the mistake of she really wanted to see hereditary and I don't do oh scary movies very well I will admit I just I don't enjoy them I get too tense and I find them I just I don't find it an enjoyable movie experience I don't mind the startled stuff you know there's lots I like thrillers and all that kind of stuff but I just don't enjoy scary movies that way. And she do you does. like thriller thriller, like the Michael Jackson video. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually my daughter loves thriller, the Michael Jackson video, but, um, so thriller, so, but not thrillers duly yeah, noted. No, no, I like thrillers. I'm saying I don't like horror movies. I really don't like horror, like sort of like horror porn, gore kind of like hostile in those movies utterly disgust me. But Anyway, so I didn't want to see Hereditary, so I kind of, and thanks in part to my mistake of following Sonny Bunch's advice, I insisted on seeing Ocean's 8, and it wasn't terrible, but it was a disappointment, and I think in the large, I won't give away spoilers and stuff, but the, the main problem with it is I think that the first third or whatever percentages of Ocean's Eleven, where they're putting the team together, is the best thing about the entire extended franchise. You know, it, it, was, it was brilliantly edited. It was brilliantly written where you just kind of felt like you were being, in, you know, it, it invited into sort of glimpses of a backstory and, and, and that you're being set up for big reveals later. And it was brilliantly paced. And they try to reenact. They try to sort of recapture that magic in the first third of um, Ocean's 8, and I just think it fails. It it feels as long as the wedding scene from The Deer Hunter, and it is, and everyone's act, the acting in it is fine and all that, and they, they, they pull back on some real comedic talents to keep it to sort of this sort of understated cool feel and look, and I just don't think it works. Um, the actual heist stuff is good, but this is the, you know, my wife actually had to wake me up at one point because I kind of dozed off for about 15 minutes in the middle of, of Ocean's 8, which never happens with me. It's happened to my wife in plenty of movies, but I just, you know, it, it was a disappointment. Um, She's not going to be happy about these, all, all these revelations of her, of her personal life. 
She won't, but that's okay. And, uh, but then the movie I saw before that, uh, which is the last movie I saw with my daughter and my wife before my daughter left for camp was Incredibles 2. You saw that, right? Yeah. Before we get into that, though, I want to bring up one last thing about Ocean's 8. Uh, John Podoritz's review of it said also that it was fine, but also, then this may explain why you fell asleep. There, this, the heist wasn't really... There were it wasn't really that dramatic or exciting. There was never really a point and this is this is his review, I haven't seen it, so I'm I'm taking his word on it. There's never really a point either in the heist or in the whole movie where it felt like, oh no, they're not going to succeed. Something has come up that will that reduces their uh or increases their uh, chance of failure. Yeah, and no, I think that's right. I think that's right. And um it was it was kind of like just a misapplication of the formula. And there's also another thing which my wife thinks I'm crazy about um, that. And this might be a sexist double standard. I'm open. I'm open to that. But the, you know, one of the things about Brad Pitt and George Clooney, particularly back then is how, you know, they didn't look like they were trying to look good. Right. Cause they're just crazy, handsome dudes. And they just dress the way they dress and all that kind of stuff. And I understand that in real life, they probably storyboarded 50 different wardrobes and they think about all, and they obviously have makeup and all that kind of stuff. But part of their aesthetic is that they have, they're just casual about their looks. And the problem with, uh, was it Kate Blanchett and, 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 and what's her name? Um, Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock is particularly when I saw it on this giant, like IMAX kind of screen, they are quaffed to a fairly well and it, you can just see how much, and they're both attractive women and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that, but there's like, they look like they spent hours in a makeup chair and hours doing their hair. And, um, and I'm sure that was probably true of Clooney and Pitt, but you notice it more on, on women and there was nothing sort of, uh, sort of devil may care about them. And instead they, there was this whole kind of like dressing for women to judge them about their clothing and how great they look, which doesn't quite work for a heist movie, you know, where everyone's pressed for time in that they look like they've, they spent four hours on their makeup, but that's, that may just be me. My wife looked at me like I had three heads when I made up, made this point. So maybe I shouldn't have done it here either. Well, I think the um, real test is in Ocean's Eleven and in just about every movie he's in, you can tell how casual Brad Pitt is in his role by how he's just always eating. Like He doesn't right. even care that eating, watching someone eat is kind of a disgusting thing. He's just going to eat. He's He probably wandered out of, of uh, the... The snack area of this of the studio with an apple in his hand is just like the director is like, well, it's Brad Pitt. I guess we're just gonna let him keep eating during this scene. And yeah, just in the movie, it looks just so cool, even though he's just taking a bite out of an apple every five seconds. Yeah, well, there's also, I mean, that's also the you know the great continuity gaffe in Ocean's Eleven with him eating. What? No, what is it? Oh yeah, no, in the show notes, maybe I'm sure there's a YouTube thing on it. When he's waiting for Julia Roberts to come down the stairs, you know, Matt Damon's been following her and he's like, this is the best part of my day, which always drove me crazy because Julia Roberts is good looking. But, you know, it's, it's not that that seemed like 
it was in her contract that people had to praise, talk about how unbelievable good looking she was. I always hated that. But anyway, in that scene, he's eating shrimp cocktail. And in one shot, he's holding like a bowl of shrimp cocktail. Then they cut away to like Julia Roberts or the crowd or whatever. And they cut back two seconds later and he's holding a flat plate of shrimp. And they just clearly, you know, in two different takes, they had him using two different receptacles and they didn't realize that, that there were different things. And, uh, it's, it's weird. You can watch that movie a million times and not notice it sort of like in, um, animal house where, uh, Donald Sullivan writes Satan on one part of the blackboard and then they cut away and they cut back and Satan has moved about uh, a foot to the right well, on the blackboard. The Prince of Darkness has his ways. That is true. That is true. But uh, anyway, so where were we? Oh, so Incredibles. Yeah. You have strong opinions on Incredibles? Well, yeah, I do. Um, the first movie, I think, I've watched it many times. I'm pretty sure it's basically perfect. Uh, and it's not only perfect, but... It was like subsequent movies, live action movies in the comic book genre basically started copying it. Most notably Iron Man 3, which has basically the same plot as The Incredibles. So The Incredibles 2 had a lot to live up to. I liked that they apologized at the beginning of the movie before it aired for how long it took to come out. And it was, on the whole, pretty good. Um, They did a lot of interesting things with powers and uh, how they would work in different environments and against different characters with other different powers. Uh, There were some scenes that were really striking, fight scenes that were better on an individual scene basis than anything in the first Incredibles movie. But on the whole, I think it was, whereas the first one was a sort of uh, mold setter, the second one owed a little more to the movies that came, the comic book movies that came out between Incredibles 2 and The Incredibles. And there have been many, uh, which bothered me a little bit. I also uh, missed, there was less Dash in Incredibles 2, which bothered me a little bit because he's my, he's my cinematic analog as a, as a fast runner. Although I can't run fast enough to run across water. But he had a whole set piece in Incredibles 1, and he didn't really have much to do in Incredibles 2. They, they focused on Jack-Jack instead which is defensible because he's, he can do anything. So that's, in, that's inherently interesting. Yeah, I thought the Jack-Jack stuff was overdone. Only, although I thought the, you know, the, the dad being having the stay-at-home dad stuff was great and really well done and, and almost conceptually perfect given who this movie was in reality aimed at. You know, this was not actually aimed at kids. It was aimed at sort of the parents of kids, particularly the parents who were nostalgic about how they were young when they saw <laughs> the first Incredibles. Um, yeah, because it has a very, like, 60s retro-futurist feel. Yeah, well, it, but that's, that's one of the funny things about it. Is that it's actually, it's set in a time outside of our own, because on the one hand, it's got all that retro 1950s, 1960s feel to it. On the other hand, they have, like, cell phones and stuff. Yeah, and there's and, an episode of The Outer Limits playing. In Incredibles right. 2. And um, I think that uh, – so I liked it a lot. My daughter, who is an obsessive, loves the first Incredibles movie. And and it was really perfectly aimed at my daughter in a lot of ways. My daughter has a lot of – like I did at her age, a lot of nostalgia issues. 
And so she really liked the sort of throwback feel to it. And one of the things that she didn't like about Incredibles 2 was that there wasn't, there weren't nearly as many inside jokes about superheroes. Um, you know, in the first one, there's all the stuff about capes, you know, never, no capes. True. Um, and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's also like a, an imp- it takes the plot of the Watchmen graphic novel and basically improves it, which is, you could say, is an inside joke. Right. And it's, all, I mean, it's also, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, how was it? Like Atlas Shrugged <laughs> meets the Watchmen. And, um, and so there's some of that stuff I think that is missing. And I, I also thought that a lot of the, the superheroes who come out of the closet, as it were, were nowhere near as good, um, either in terms of being funny or as being cool as the heroes that were in Incredibles one, you know, the, the, you know, glazer beam and or even gazer beam or even Frozone. you know, some of them I thought were really kind of dumb looking, but all, all I liked it and I thought it held, it'll hold up pretty well. And I'm, I'm generally pro on it. I, I, I think it's, you know, you wait, how long was it? 16 years? Uh, 14. Yeah. You wait that long before you uh, come out with a sequel. You're, I don't think it's possible to come out better than the original. You know, so your only question is, is how, how far short of the first one do you fall? And I thought this, it felt short of the first one, but not outrageously so. Mm-hmm. I do wonder, and again, maybe this is just, you know, this also the special misogyny podcast or the misogyny edition of the remnant, you know, if you are Elastigirl, I guess there were all these people who were like body shaming Elastigirl's butt and thighs and stuff. Wait, really? Um, yeah. On Twitter, it was a thing for a couple of days and I body shaming uh, a cart. Okay. Whatever. Her, her mom body. Right. And the thing is, is that, you know, let me put it this way. If, if I were like Stretch Armstrong or or Plastic Man or Mister Fantastic and could stretch into almost any form I had, I could, I would do a lot more with my body type than the one I currently have. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, and so it just kind of bothers me that like she could just be you know she could be she could take her body type and just make herself eight inches taller and all of a sudden she's like you know leggy and voluptuous. But instead, she just reverts back to sort of um, a mom jeans kind of mom body type. And I just think it's kind of funny. But I, I, uh, I, I hereby renounce everything I just said to anybody who's offended by it. Um, okay. Since you brought up running, you, t- you mentioned something to me the other day that there is an unwritten rule among runners that you're not supposed to wear glasses, sunglasses. No, it's the rule, and maybe I'm overstating this, but to me, in these sort of semi-sub-elite circles that I've been in, or, well, to me that they're that, but to most other people, it's just elite. If you show up to a race, any race, with sunglasses on, and you're not in the top five of that race, then you're just a poser. Um, which is why, even though... I'm semi-frequently in the top five of races that I show up to. I still feel sort of bashful and don't wear sunglasses because I, I, I don't feel that I'm worthy of it. And there are a lot of people who still show up to these races in sunglasses and don't end up in the top five, and they're just posers. That's, that's all there is to it. 
I mean, is it sort of like you see some of these guys, like one of my great peeves around DC is particularly in where I live um, on weekends. There are all of these cyclists who take over sort of MacArthur Boulevard and canal road and all of these things. And some of them look like they are so decked out that they should have, they should be on, on at least getting the bronze at the tour de France. Right. Is it, is it sort of like that? that like there are these people who care more about dressing the part than being the part. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, uh, I don't want to get any running store owners mad at me because this is kind of their business model, uh, is to convince people like they're they're I'm the enemy of their business model because all I ever buy is shoes and maybe shorts, but they try to convince people who are of lesser caliber to, that they need like this, the backpack with all the water uh, pouches and, the like reflector vest that makes you visible from like 600 miles away. Uh, there are a lot of people who there's an, yes, I get to make another SpongeBob reference and it's it's superhero related too. So double points. There's an episode of SpongeBob where they do a sort of superhero parody and it's revealed that there are, there are no superpowers. It's just all in the suits. So they put on the suits and all of the characters in SpongeBob have superpowers. So there are some people who think of, athletic pursuits as just like oh i'll wear all this this gear and now i must be great um but really it's it's the opposite it must come from within i think there's a lot of it'd be you guys should do a good piece doing a ranking of the different uh i don't know uh sports or activities where this is a phenomenon like camping i think is for sure one oh yeah (laughs) <laughs> you know, where you get these crazy rich people who don't know how to camp, that don't know anything about the outdoors, and they buy all of this stuff that is far beyond their capacity to understand how to use it or actually get value out of it. Yeah, I can think of the couple of scenes from movies where there's the, there's like the stereotype of the rich guy camper who shows up with uh, all that all that stuff. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's, a, there's an episode of L.A. Law based on this, which is the only thing that's coming to mind in terms of popular culture, which is pretty obscure at this point. And I assume there's an analog to this in sailing, and I'm sure there's an analog to this in hunting. You know, people bring in guns and ammo that has no place in deer hunting or something like that. I, I just don't know much about all that stuff. Oh, so anyway, uh, we're going to wrap things up in a second here, but I did want to tell one funny story. Um, you know, we tried to do well, this part's not the funny part. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we tried to do the podcast I'll be the from, judge of that. Uh, from DC on, um, what day was that? Monday, Tuesday. Tuesday. And, uh, we had technological errors, um, or problems, challenges that were not solvable in the amount of time I had before I had to get on the road. And so we figured we'll just do this as a, um, Skype podcast, even though I don't really like doing these things as Skype podcasts, in part because I don't like the audio quality, in part because I don't like it. I don't like it where I'm just talking a lot by myself to begin with. But at least when I'm doing it in a, in the studio with you, with Jack, it's there's there's an organic way of sort of moderate modulating the conversation. And instead, I'm incredibly self conscious. I'm sitting in this beach house just talking in an empty room and it's very weird, self-conscious feeling. But anyway, we try to do it then. And I want to do all this stuff about the declaration of independence because it's a big part of the book and it's a big part of my argument for the book. And, but now we're recording this on July 5th. This probably won't go up until maybe July 6th. 
and it kind of feels like we missed that window. So I'm not going to read from Calvin Coolidge's Fourth of July speech, which is the second best thing ever written about the Declaration of Independence. Um, the first being, you know, the Gettysburg Address. But so I'm here in Nantucket, staying with friends, and we uh, we went to there's this. I mean, Nantucket is beautiful, old, uh, you know, almost postcardy kind of town, and there are apparently some incredibly ridiculous regulations to keep it looking like one. And, um, but anyway, we went to the Unitarian church slash meeting house where they have this wonderful tradition, which is oddly only like 19 years old of reading the entire declaration of independence and the, and the bill of rights out loud and people take turns doing it. And it's really great Americana and it's, it's not. And there's a guy who, gets the crowd started with some patriotic songs from Yankee Doodle Dandy. All stuff. That's great. I love this stuff. This is, you know, I don't see it as kitsch, but I, I like to, even if you do, I like this kind of kitsch. I think it's, it's healthy. It's good. People bring their kids, all this kind of stuff. Um, but uh, the two things that were of note is one, the woman who read the part of the declaration that had to do with the, the, King of England blocking the natural process of immigration to the United States put incredible stink on it to make it about Donald Trump and the big chunks of the audience cheered. And I just thought that was kind of like gross. You know, it's not like me and my friends got up and cheered when they read the second amendment you know? um, <laughs> or never mind like the ninth and 10th amendments, which, you know, never get the credit that they deserve. And, Don't uh, sleep on the ninth and 10th. But the amazing thing was, is that I, I immediately look in the program and it's got this thing and I don't have it in front of me, but it basically says, because we do not believe that in the repetition, repetition of falsehoods and historical inaccuracies, we do not believe that these offensive concepts should be reinforced in uh, today's America, blah, 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 blah. We are not going to read the part about the crown fomenting the savages to attack settlers or whatever it says in the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that when you started describing this. And it was, it's me, look, I mean, at least to their credit, they actually include the text in the program of what they've cut out from the reading which is a, a better way in terms of historical honesty to do it. But at the same time, if you're going to put it there, why not just read it, you know? And, um, and it's, it's, I just thought it was sort of this fascinating encroachment of political correctness. And Lord knows, you know, you know, you start reading through all of the grievances and there are a whole bunch of things in there that eventually you could see, you know, some woke type wanting to excise, um, you know, and memory hole. But other than that, you know, it didn't ruin the whole experience or anything like that. I just thought it was interesting and a sign of the times that we're in. Um, and I don't want to, like, turn it into more than it is. But anyway, uh, before we conclude, I should take a few minutes to talk to you about NR+. And uh, you've heard me talk about this before. I think that it is – I'm really hoping that this thing succeeds because it is, it is sort of this idea that we finally had the – the, the competence, the, tech, the technological ability, and the economic incentives to do something that I've been arguing for in one form or another 
for almost 20 years since I first started National Review Online back in the Pleistocene era. And it's basically just sort of turn all of NR world into a membership has its privileges kind of thing. It's a way to feel part of the NR community. We try, we're going to try and come up with as many possible perks and value adds that are available only to the people who have an NR plus membership, including these conference calls. Um, you're the only way you can comment is to as be an NR plus member. You get total access for 10 years of the print magazine. You get to help the magazine in important ways that are important at this time. And, and it makes your total interaction with NR much easier, but also much richer. You know, for example, when you, when you join NR plus and are logged into the site, you'll see up to 90% fewer ads on the site. And that's zero ads within the articles themselves, which is a huge boon for me because I often, you know, I start seeing some of the ads and I just sort of give up reading lots of articles. Um, that might also have to do with the fact that I'm, I'm drunk most of the time, but that be as it may. So it's a terrific deal. There's amazing different version. Uh, there, there are amazing different options you can get about how you want to price this, um, about what kind of version you want to get. So all you have to do is go to nationalreview.com slash plus that's nationalreview.com slash plus. And there you can read about everything this membership has to offer. And then just click join now to see all your options. That's NR plus folks, nationreview.com slash plus. Um, so Jack, do we have much by way of various and sundry that we need to be talking about? Let's see. Well, tomorrow or perhaps today, depending on when today for people listening to this, maybe July 6th, we'll put it that way. will be the start of my, well, it'll be the third year or three years since I started working for you. Wow, that was more complicated to say than it needed to be. Yes, the anniversary of you starting to work for me was three is coming up on three years ago, right? That's what you meant to say. Yes, that's what. And it's I also tried your birthday coming up. Yes, and, my birthday is the day after that. And if you had not objectively failed me so in the podcast that we were going to do on Tuesday, I was going to talk about that at great length, and then I forgot today to bring it up. So you know, it's self inflicted wound. That, <laughs> but, you cannot blame what happened on Tuesday on me. That that was beyond. That was a faux beyond. That's like that's like Gandalf blaming uh, Aragorn for the Balrog. That was a faux beyond any of us. And I, we had no when, Gandalf. When I was a television producer, the whole point was to anticipate problems so they did not materialize. And uh, no, but I don't actually blame you for it much. Uh, and anyway, um, but I do want to say, you know, uh, you know, so my wife, who's probably your biggest advocate, um, thank you in, in, in my I'm saying this to your wife. Yeah, I figured, uh, she's constantly telling me how I can't get, I can't cut you from the show. You're part of the show, blah, 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 blah. And, um, you gotta, I gotta stop being so mean to you and all of this sort of, you know, rhino squish cuck stuff. <laughs> but, uh, anyways, I do want to say. You know, for listeners to know that, you know, uh, Suicide of the West, I probably could have gotten it done without Jack, but it would have taken years longer and cost millions of lives. And <laughs> uh, and so I'm deeply grateful to Jack for that. I'm deeply grateful to Jack for all the other hard work that he's done on this podcast and 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 and, and other uh, more humiliating tasks that I've assigned to him over the years. And I want to say happy birthday to you for all of that. That's uh, so. How old are you now? 
Uh, I'll be 25 on Saturday. I'm uh, in my tw- I'm in my 20s. I forget what age I actually am. That's why I had to think about it. Yeah. No, that happens until you turn 30. It just all kind of bleeds together. Um, well, it's just that I'm in such uh, such great shape. I feel like I've failed every year since I was like 18. It's nice. Stay fit, uh, people. And I want to congratulate, uh, since we're congratulating people, I uh, want to congratulate Brad Thor, uh, who's been a uh, huge um, supporter of of Suicide of the West. He's a big fan of it. He blurbed it. And he is um, uh, um, and I believe he was scheduled to say nice things about it on the Today Show this week. I don't know if that actually happened. But he has got a um, uh, a new book out uh, this – I believe it's this week. It, it, it came out. I, I have it uh, waiting for me at home. It's Spymaster. And I'm very much looking forward to reading it. And um, I want to just give him a shout-out and say congratulations on that. And um, gosh, I can't remember. I still have to write a column. So I should probably get going on that. And uh, please review The Remnant. Please don't hold this, this slipshot edition of The Remnant against it in the future. Um, we're going to be back with more um, exciting and interesting and controversial guests in the near future. And But please review it. Please subscribe where you can, when you can to it. Uh, it helps us in all sorts of important ways. We have... Um, we've broken new records in terms of listeners to this thing, but the fake uh, news media will never tell you that. That's exactly right, and it's and part of the problem is, is that the uh, the the universe is uh, the universe of podcasts is just expanding faster than the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and we don't want to get lost in the switches, and we don't want to be relegated to a you know a, an obscure niche podcast like some of our friends. Also, oh, that reminds me, and I don't mean that in a nasty way. Uh, I also want to congratulate um, our fearless leader at the American Enterprise Institute. At least he's, he'll always be fearless, and he's, but he's going to be our leader for only a limited amount of time longer because we're looking for a new president. And I, I, I will never forgive him for leaving, but I understand why he's doing it. And, uh, but he is launching a new podcast titled and, – and I, I, I want you to brace yourself for the incredible – creativity of this title the arthur brooks show um and uh i'm sure he's gonna be a great podcast host and um and uh i look forward we tried to actually have him on recently to help promote it and but he was off gallivanting somewhere uh not like me in nantucket and uh, uh i want to congratulate him on that and i look forward to that being a huge success and him being a um, a vigorous competitor in the um, pod wa- podcast wars to come. And beyond that, thanks to everybody, and I'll see you in studio on, uh, on next week for the next edition of The Remnant.
is this new devilry?